G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. It's that time again, time for our first new special of Series 4. Together with our expert panel, Twista asks some hard questions about the state of the Australian tech ecosystem. Everyone in government is fighting for startups, but do any of them really understand what startups need to succeed? Is the investment climate changing? And what about that ideas boom? All of that and lots more on this new special episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website. Well, welcome to another of our regular news and review episodes of This Week in Startups Australia. Let's begin by introducing our panelists who joined us on the very first news special 18 months ago. Paul Wallbank is a journalist, broadcaster, and speaker on business and technology who blogs at paulwallbank.com. Hello, Mark. And Phil Morrill is the CEO of Pollinizer, Australia's first tech startup incubator. Welcome, Phil. Hey, Mark. All right, gentlemen, let's get stuck right in here. So, Nick Holmes of Court used to be a big member of the startup community over here in Australia, has moved to America. He wrote a blistering post on Medium, which he took down and then reposted a couple of weeks later because he'd gotten some feedback. It goes into detail about why Australia is not a good place to be a startup entrepreneur. And he particularly took aim at the ATO. But I'm going to quote Nick at length because he makes four real points here. And for those of you listening at home, you can find a link to the entire article on our Tumblr. So, first point he makes is universities produce half the engineers they did a decade ago. Second, taxation on gains from startups have no material discount to reflect the massive level of risk. And mature categories of investment that don't generate export revenue, like real estate, they have things like negative carry. Government programs that are designed to assist startups, such as R&D rebates or Commercialization Australia, they end up mostly being used by established companies to increase their margins. And then finally, and I'll go all the way into this, the ATO aggressively reviews early stage companies that are loss making over non-material errors in compliance and that causes a massive distraction and costs startups that are so fragile, he says it's a miracle that they're in business at all, let alone dealing with tax compliance. No entrepreneur can comply with thousands of unknown rules as they are most likely young, passionate software engineers or designers that are fighting tooth and nail to create something of great value. You don't even know if your product will work or if you can find an ideal customer and you need to understand why they want to buy it in a large enough market and you have to do this with another 35 niches to test and you're fighting to be alive and you have no idea whether you can get to profitability and then the ATO rocks up and you can burn weeks of your life and the rest of your very limited cash on bank accounts and lawyers and tax accountants. It's like they want to kill innovation on purpose, Nick says. All right. Well, Phil, what do you reckon? Is, is Nick spot on with this? Oh, I think there's, there's a, a lot of truth, and it is very, very hard work running a startup in Australia. I mean, there are some good things that come out of the tech system. For example, I think most startups I know uh, absolutely are helped by things like the RN the R&D concession that mm. is that's a good thing for people you see it in everybody's annual budget they need it it's like a capital raising that really helps 
Uh, I think the tech system is just so complicated now that we all end up in a situation where we have to get quite complicated advice or risk getting into quite deep trouble because we're all doing new things in a complicated financial environment. And if we don't get advice, then we can get into big trouble. And that advice costs any, in my world, it's anywhere from five to $15,000 every time we ask nice. for something. And that takes time that we're not building our products. It, it takes oh, money it takes that capital. we don't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's too much and it should be, it should be simpler. Now, and Paul, you've actually experienced the pointy end of this. Absolutely. Um, one of the key things with the tax system is the 80% rule, where uh, if you're getting 80% of your income from any one source, then you're trapped by the alienation of personal income. So in my first study... Okay, what does that mean? Well, what they're saying there is that uh, you can't put your losses on a business against your normal income. So if you've got eighty percent of your income is coming in from consulting or from any one particular source, so let's say you're working for Fishburn as a right. as a manager and uh, and you've got a startup on the side, you can't be claiming as a business if you're getting more than eighty percent of that income coming in through that source. And this is where it gets really interesting with the negative gearing because of course negative gearing allows you to offset that those losses against property speculation. Right. But if you're running a startup or you've invented the new stump jump plow or something like that, you can't put those costs against your normal income. Now, in my case, so I was audited five years in a row uh, because the- Five eight- years in a row. And, well, and who paid for every one of those audits? I paid for them. In fact, I was audited six times in five years because one year... Because they did it once for luck? No, because one year they decided to audit me for GST compliance as well. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it, it gets tough there. And this makes it really, really difficult for a startup because, um, again, if you've uh, decided to go into that, what I think is a bit of a trap when you're, doing a, when you're running a startup, of doing some consulting work on the side to bring in some cash, uh, that all of a sudden brings in a whole bunch of uh, risks as a startup founder that you're going to find yourself caught in this trap of the personal income. So does Nick make a good point about the fact that if you're, particularly if you're a young startup person, someone in their 20s or 30s, when people normally do their first, that you are simply not around this. Now, I know from my own experience at Moore's Cloud that I was approaching it as if I was doing an American corporation, more or less with my sense of how American tax law would work. And it proved very much Mm. not to be the case. So are we dealing with a a real knowledge gap around this? Uh, I don't think this is age related. Uh, The tax, as Phil says, the tax system is so complex. It doesn't matter if you're 25 or 75. Getting your head, unless you're a full-time tax accountant, getting your head around this is pretty tough. In fact, I'd suggest even full-time tax accountants would be first to say hey i don't specialize in every area of tax law it's just too complex oh, that's true in fact you know whenever we speak to our tax advisors they always say hey well here's what i think could be true but i really need to go and spend a couple of days working on this and you know they bring out these very thick books <laughs> with very small writing and very thin pieces of paper mm. to give them the guidance that they need okay Let's tie this now into the ideas boom, because we have a government that is heading toward probably a, a double dissolution in July and an election where innovation is going to be something that the parties will be talking about. We'll talk more about that in terms of state governments in our next segment. But in terms of the ideas boom, there's supposed to be a lot in there that's supposed to make it easier for Australians to create their ideas and produce wealth with those ideas. Is any of that vision meeting policy at this point? 
well, well, I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, there's this, there's a question about where governments can and should uh, help interfere, depending on how you look at it. Mm. I think uh, that one of the things they can do, which is most helpful, is tell a great story, which provides social proof for the rest of the country to get behind an idea. And I think the ideas boom has been profound in that sense. You know, having been working in startups for 10 years in Sydney, uh, you know, most of that time it's been like pushing a boulder up a hill. There certainly hasn't been any support from the government. Big companies don't really understand what we're doing. And then the ideas boom has created an incredible validation of the opportunity of innovation and startups. So now every big company behaves differently. Every every possible grant is available to us now. You know, every um, every government department is suddenly looking at startups as well as putting tenders out to the world is is different and uh, we're being looked at differently because of the ideas boom. That's the most powerful thing more than any money or or tax benefit that, that the government could provide. But if it's still as hard, if everything that Nick said in his piece is true, Paul, then isn't it a case of a very mixed signal where on one hand you're saying, oh my God, go forth and innovate, and on the other hand you're saying, but we're going to do everything we can to fetter that? Yeah, I think it's a bit more complex than that. And um, I agree with Phil that the at least the rhetoric we're hearing is a big improvement on what we've heard over the last 15, 20 years. Although interestingly, I've spent earlier this week up at um, at the Tech Leaders Summit up in um, the Blue Mountains, which uh, it's a bit of a misnomer. It's actually the journos getting together with the uh, tech, tech industry vendors. But some of those journos have been around for 20, 30, 40 years in some cases mm-hmm. around the tech industry. Some of them remember the days of the Keating Knowledge Nation um, initiatives, um, and a lot of them are very, very sceptical on this. Uh, we've heard this before. And to be honest, I heard this uh, in my brief stint with the state government when I was doing the Digital Sydney program, which was to promote Sydney as a startup centre, a creative industry centre. How long ago was that? That was 2009, 2010. Okay. And um, at the time, um, quite a few of our mutual friends, Phil, said to me, mate, I've heard this before from the Ooh. state government. And there's a real feeling of that. Another thing with the tech leaders um, was on Sunday last week, mm. um, they had the Liberal Party give their um, opportunity to speak at it, and they sent one of the local Western Sydney MPs. Oh, I saw uh, this. I think yeah. this was reported in Crikey. Uh, yeah, and this was, to put it bluntly, was a train wreck. It really, by not by bringing out a local MP who wasn't particularly well briefed, certainly had a poor speech, and she didn't really understand what she was um, talking about on this. That um, it really sent the signal that the government really isn't across this. Um, that really they had the opportunity to send anyone from Wyatt Roy up to the Prime Minister right. along, and they ha- had an unfettered way of getting a message out there. And you really came away with the feeling that they are not taking this seriously. It would be nice if they were, because we have to fix these tax rules. We've done some of the proposals that t- to change the tax rules in treatments of options and um, so on are really welcome, but by crikey, we're going to have to move on it. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I just want to say a few words about Twista sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Developers around the world have used Braintree's V.0 SDK as a simple way to accept PayPal, credit cards, debit cards, and whatever's next. 
With a single, scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. Using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code, but don't take their word for it. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com slash twista. Okay, we're back with Phil and Paul and the new special. And Paul, you actually gave us the perfect bridge because you started to talk about state support for startup communities and you talked about the Digital Sydney program. Well, we're now, over the last couple of months, in the middle of what I'm going to call the emerging bum fight between <laughs> Victoria's Minister for Innovation, Philip Daladakis, and the New South Wales Minister, Victor Dominello. Victor's been a guest on Twister. And he was quoted in Startup Smart uh, saying a few things. He said, look it, I think maturity needs to take control here. That's what Dominello is saying. Because he's been fighting with Aladakis. So he says competition is so 20th century. In the innovation space, particularly collaboration is key. And if Daladakis wants to play these schoolyard games across the border, that's fine. But first and foremost, we're Australian. Where we can collaborate between the states, that's a win-win. And that type of leadership is what we need in the innovation space, end quote. And of course, that's Pauly speak for leave us alone and take your checkbook home. Mm. Paul, Don't, is this working out for anyone, this, this fight over startups between New South Wales and Victoria? Having seen that particular sausage machine up close of state support for industries, no, this is not going to end well. It, Victoria's been there before with the games industry. Um, uh, that all ended in tears when Queensland stole half the studios and the entire Australian sector collapsed under the high Aussie dollar anyway. Right. So we've been there before with this. But uh, Dominello would say this because he's got no support at all from the New South Wales government. The New South Wales government is um, completely focused on coal mines, roads and property development. That is the three pillars of the New South Wales economy as far as they're concerned. In one respect, though, I think that's good for the startup community in Sydney and um, in regional New South Wales because um, it means less government interference. Um, certainly my friends in Victoria were white hot angry about the $1 million given to Sidstart. Um, that that um, we'll be coming to that in further yeah, segment sure. of the show. Okay, yes. Um, but uh, they were white hot angry at that because the attitude was, well, we've got a whole bunch of really good um, events here in Victoria. Mm. Why are we um, subsidising another one to come down? As someone who grew up in Melbourne, I have to say I can kind of see where the Victorian government's coming from. That uh, there is a chip on the shoulder. There is that um, uh, let's beat Sydney mentality there. By all means, throw a lot of money at it. Uh, $60 million, I think it is, over three that's years. Right. Um, that's great. Um, go for it. They're doing some really good stuff and supporting co-working spaces and so on in Melbourne. It's. Uh, I, I would imagine in regional Victoria, they'd like to see a bit of that coming their way in Geelong and Ballarat and so on. But mm. um, but I, I think it's good that the Victorian government's getting in there. Um, the New South Wales government... It's a philosophical thing, though. This this goes back to the days of Griner and uh, Bob Carr that they don't really get involved in this stuff, apart from throwing big numbers at uh, at CBIT and the odd movie production. All right, so, Phil, I'm also now hearing that a lot of the money that's being thrown around is being thrown around in announceables, you know, so that the minister has a chance for a photo op or the premier has a chance for a photo op. Are we going to see startup policy by announceable as a thing? Are we going to be forced to deal with that as part of 
the deal with getting attention from government? I th- yeah, I think so. I think, you know, we're experiencing a lot of that. I found myself uh, facing the camera, uh, posing for a Twitter post and multiple times in the last few months with various Which ha- politicians. Which really been a thing before, right? Right, that's right. And, and you know, and I think I think that's good if, if, if there's people with the right intention, the right know-how, the right uh, drive to make a change are coming and seeing what we're doing and helping us, I think that's good. If it's if it just ends up at the photo op, you know, I think that's bad. I think my perspective on the on the Melbourne Sydney thing is, I think it does matter actually. Um, the you know, it's hard to to build a concentrated momentum uh, in a country. You know, it it ha- yeah, it isn't it isn't Silicon Valley isn't America. No. It's a small corridor in a small part of California. No. And because of that, it's very, very powerful. And I think there's some, there's a, if, if let's look at another example, Singapore, for example. So Singapore, with government intervention, has now become a hot house of startup innovation. I know when I go to a conference or an event in Singapore that I will meet everybody I want to meet. And not just Singaporean people, but people from Estonia, people from the United States because this hotspot has been created in, in one city. Is that dense? I mean, Singapore's tiny, right? Singapore is not much bigger than Sydney CBD in total. So is that because of the density? Is that something that we'll never be able to have here because we're just way big? I, I think they invested year in, year out in the ecosystem, the events, the people, to to make it worthwhile people mm-hmm. coming from other places mm-hmm. into and 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 southeast asia has its own unique characteristics obviously all of the places are small in terms of startup ecosystems so you may as well all come together in one spot what's slightly different with melbourne and sydney is both of those ecosystems are quite massive in their own right mm-hmm. um, and certainly we should both have vibrant supported funded ecosystems but I think um, it would be it would be incorrect in my view to assume it doesn't really matter. So let's let's both be good. I think. And it's funny we should mention this because it turns out that Tasmania now wants to get in on the action, and the Tasmanian government's throwing about a million and a half dollars into a collaborative space. And Startup Tasmania board member Casey Farrell was reported saying, "quote With the right programs." With the right supports, we'll be able to build a startup ecosystem in Hobart, Launceston, and anywhere in the state that can compete with Melbourne or Sydney on a per capita level. Now, is that reasonable? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a. I mean, that's an example of a of a ignorant politician <laughs> saying something um, that from what they've read in a blog post and not from reality. So it, 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 there are many, many stratas and layers of what makes an ecosystem from, from, from talent to sort of mindset to um, uh, technology capabilities, innovation capabilities, history. There just, there just aren't enough people to have all that. And there, and there isn't enough time. There, ha- there hasn't been 10 years, 20 years of development. Yeah. of Tasmania is, what, 300,000-ish? Yeah. yeah. Uh, if I can jump in there too, there's another thing on this as well that uh, we're seeing in all of this discussion. So Tasmania's been there before with this, that we've seen various programs over the years in Tasmania to do this. They run for a few years, then they peter out. Same in Victoria. Because there's same a changing government or something. Yeah, and this, is, this comes back to the Singaporean discussion and the lesson that we're not learning from Israel. So we keep seeing politicians coming back from Israel saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
The thing is with Israel and Singapore is that they have consistent government policies over time. In this country, you change a prime minister, let alone government, or you change a premier, let alone government, or a minister. Let's point and out that all of a sudden, those programs all dry up. Singapore has never had a change of government. No, but we, we Israel, should, Israel has had plenty. Oh. That, um, and but Israel's it, a pretty fractured But it's, it's, it's absolutely yeah. the point, Paul. You're, yeah. you're completely right. You know, the any kind of new growth, any grassroots startup yeah. type movement, it's a it's decades long in mm. its in its gestation and development. You know, a single venture fund takes on average eight years to mm. get its return and, you know, governments might change a couple of times in that in that cycle. Exactly right. And on top of that having the consistent vision, consistent policies. Right. So that creates the framework. But also if you're going to change them, talk to people. I mean and again in the startup sector in Australia, we had the options clamped down oh, under yeah. the uh, Rudd government. Uh, yeah. No consultation, no thought about this. Yeah. And now with the uh, with the ideas boom, again, no, th no thought, no consultation. And we have this alleged um, funding drought at the moment while people are waiting for the... Um, for the laws the, to change. The laws to change, yeah. Right. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci. As you know, because you're listening, This Week in Startups Australia reaches a very active community of entrepreneurs, of investors, of people who are listening and actively interested in all things startup. And if you think you'd like to reach that audience, we would love to have you as an advertiser. We get some of Australia's most exciting companies to come on and sponsor our show so that we can bring the best of Australia's startup community to you. So if you're interested in sponsoring, please reach out to me via email mark at markpesci.com. Thanks. Okay, we're back with Phil and with Paul. Now let's talk about the investment climate because that is changing. And Daniel Petri, who's the founder, sort of the guiding light behind Airtree VC, recently wrote an article that he titled, Winter is Coming. It's all about the decline of startup valuations in the United States. And of course, having just come from there, most of the investors over there do believe that that decline in evaluation is long overdue, although it does mean that existing companies are going to find it harder to find rounds at the same price that they've gotten in earlier overpriced rounds. But he was reflecting on, Danny was reflecting on how that's going to affect startups and valuations in Australia. So here's some of what he said in this piece, and this piece is going to be published also on our Tumblr. Okay, quote, generally speaking, valuations for tech overall have come back. The Australian market is only just now starting to see what seemed fair and appropriate a few months ago in terms of valuations that might not be the case now. And given the rapid influx of new money into the market, perhaps we will not see the impact for a while as some investors think this is just a blip on the road to all sorts of massive returns. But this is just a timing issue. Winter is coming, whether or not Australia enjoys a short Indian summer. Okay, so Phil, you are an investor. Is he, tr is he right? Is this happening? Well, I, I think there's, there will be a, a bit of an adjustment. I, I don't think it's going to be a bubble bursting or a crashing. The, well, we didn't the, have the same bubble that the Americans did. That's right. I mean, the, the the valuations that we're seeing are extremely high at the moment by anybody's measure. I, I, I must say, though, I am a tech optimist, and I do think the economic 
opportunities now in this world are enormous. So like a lot of these valuations may well be justified, but nonetheless, I think there's a, there's a legion of, of startups which have got enormously high valuations. Um, I, I agree with Daniel in his, in his article that if those companies don't get to some kind of positive cash flow situation soon with the adjustment that happens, they may not be able to get around at that valuation that mm. they had before. And that would be troubling. I think in, in Australia, it's always been um, a lot more rational, um, sometimes too rational. Well, it, well it's um, funny because I think two years ago, we would have said underpriced. Yeah. <laughs> now we're saying rational. Well, I think, it, well, it helps, it helps, it helps keep us stable when the, when the, when winter does come, we're okay. We've got a fire, we're nice and warm, we're okay. But um, so I think the ants and the Americans are the grasshoppers. <laughs> I do think there is a. I do think though there is a there is an ongoing problem with with uh, Australian uh, risk aversion to investment, and it does go to to some of those the lacks of government sort of help there for investors. But generally, Australian investors always invest in a in a sure thing, mm-hmm. right? Something where they can see the past path to cash flow. Uh, so you're not going to see Australian investors investing in in deep tech or in in uh, in virtual reality or in some of the things we see Google and Facebook working on now and you know different communication platforms. We just we we won't see it because I can't as as a, as an entrepreneur I can't imagine going to an Australian investor and getting a buck. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Paul, what do you think about this? I mean, are you starting? You, you just had a nice conversation with Bill Barty over at Blackbird mm. around how this is all changing. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That conversation was interesting because it was actually at Cisco Live in Melbourne last week, mm-hmm. where uh, Cisco were a big investor in the last round of Blackbird. So this two hundred million dollar fund that Blackbird that 200 has million now. So Cisco fund. is. is yeah, they're being a bit coy on it. We're not sure whether it, it could be anywhere between one point five and four million that uh, Cisco tipped into it. Okay. Keep in mind that Cisco's got two, Cisco VC's arm has got something like two billion dollars invested around the world. So it's not they haven't taken a big chunk of um, of um, Blackbird, but of Blackbird's latest round. But yeah, uh, that's um, it was interesting talking to him on the. Uh, on his view, that uh, there wasn't there wasn't a shortage of um, startups, but there aren't as many good startups to invest in as he'd, he'd like, and that reflects something that I was talking to Steve Baxter the previous week about. Now, Steve's of course a lot more aggressive in the way that he puts mm. it, but, and a uh, lot more blunt, and a lot more blunt. And um, I'd, I'd defer to Phil on his views <laughs> on that. Um, but uh, the feeling was was that um, there's a pretty healthy climate there. Um, what I what struck me by it though is that these numbers are still fairly small that um and as phil says there's a really short-term horizon on these and most of these investments are not uh long-term over the horizon mm. stakes these are uh and they're not looking at say kill me now the next uber um we uh yeah, earlier this week at the tech leaders conference we were running um running a um, buzzword bingo on um, how often uber would be commented and, mentioned. and i've i think i've breached the modern godwin's law by mentioning it in this podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, no 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 but how, but how often was was uber invoked uh, three or four times per keynote speech right. um particularly when it was the politicians that's um they love that idea and it was an interesting pushback from some of the journalists actually 
actually, uh, that uh, they're like Uber is a job destroyer and it's an American company that pays no tax in Australia or very little tax. Mm. So why are you politicians pushing this? Which I thought was an interesting line there. Um, I don't think that's helpful for the startup community either, by the way. But uh, uh, there is uh, flagging Uber as the uh, case study. It's probably a bit risky. And of course, I've gone ahead and done that. <laughs> but, uh, but, go catch. Yeah, go catch, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Exactly. But this is, sorry, my point with this was that uh, you're not really seeing those uh, longer term plays, those more genuinely disruptive plays. Right. If there isn't a clear path to profitability or a clear business model right now. Uh, one of the um, startups speaking yesterday was um, a drone startup and they were saying how they could not get funding in Australia. Uh, they had to go um, overseas. And interestingly enough, in Melbourne too, was another drone startup propeller out of uh, the ATP Innovations uh, was saying how they had a mix of US and um, Australian investors because they couldn't wholly raise Which is Australia. shocking because ATP Innovations has really got some of the best investment minds looking in and guiding these companies. And so mm. it should be a very easy sell. But again, what they're doing is it's not a SaaS startup. Right, everyone wants mm. a global, scalable SaaS startup, and Propeller is really amazing drone technology, but it's mm. not a SaaS startup. So, Phil, are we still, in a sense, high bound by investors who have such a narrow description of what constitutes a profitable venture that they immediately rule things out because they simply don't understand the investment? I think so, and you know, if you if you look to the U.S. and you see funds like Andreessen Horowitz and their whole software's eating the world. Uh, philosophy you know that there's an investment philosophy which which says these digital things are going to radically we're going to replace a whole bunch of other things and become much much bigger business models and we're going to bet deep and hard and long on investing in these things we don't have that you know so 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 investors in australia will want to see the certain path to revenue um, uh, whereas a Mark Andreessen would be very comfortable with maybe that'll happen in eight years from now where it'll start to finally come good, but we need to invest hard and deep to get there. And I think perhaps one of the standouts there is Soylent, which of course everyone giggles about, right? He's extremely bullish on them. I think maybe if you're taking that eight to 10 year horizon, then Soylent is your marker on a new kind of food. That's right. And that's a, and I think an Australian investor and you know, I know I'm putting them all into one generalist pile here, but my experience would be they just they would feel that it was you know it was risky. They didn't understand it enough. It was a long game, and 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 some of some of their logic for that is correct because we shouldn't put our money in as investors if our money won't get the if we don't feel that our money with others will get the company there. If we feel like it just won't be able to fund itself to get to the point of success, then no point in, in investing. And I think that's the problem that we're all faced with. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. During our news specials, we always reference articles and interviews online. And if you would like to read them for yourself and come to your own conclusions, well, visit our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You're going to find photos of our esteemed news panel, previous episodes, articles, lots more. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Okay, we're back with our final segment with Phil Morrill and Paul Wallbank. Now, I've just come back from the launch festival 
in San Francisco, California. And once again, I was a grand jury member, so I had to sit through about 50 pitches from a range of startups at various points in their journeys. Now, there's about 200 companies in the demo pit. I had to go through the demo pit because part of my job as a grand juror is to pull companies out so that they pitch on the main stage. The company that I liked best, and I wrote about it last week in the register, you'll find that article linked on Tumblr, is a company called Biomeme, who make a handheld genetic tester. Paul, you walk off of a plane from Brazil with a fever. We swab you, and in two minutes, my iPhone tells me whether you have Zika virus. I had never seen anything like this. I said, come on, we're going to get you on the main stage. They said, no. Now, this is like Santa being told that no one wants your presence. What do you mean? <laughs> it's the one thing I can do for people when I'm at launch. They're like, actually, we want to wait two years. We're going to have the consumer unit out. And I'm blown away because people will be able to do all sorts of testing for sexually transmitted diseases or the microbiome or whatever it might be at home in the palm of their hand. Second thing I saw was a company called Quantiax. Quantiax.com, go check this out. It is an open source hedge fund. What that means is they provide all of the tools and all of the data so that quants anywhere can make up their own formulas. They can submit them. Once they're approved, they go into a leaderboard and you as an investor can come in and figure out which ones you want to invest in. The profits are split 80, 10 to Quantiax and 10 to the quant. So if you make a good formula as a quant, you make a lot of money. All right. So all that happens. And, uh, we decide who the winners are. And Jason invites me on stage because we're going to give a gong to a company called Carbon Robotics. It's the best demo bit company doing amazing things for robotics. You should check them out. And here's what happens. You and I have been f dear friends for so long and um, every year that relationship just gets better and better. And last year you said, hey, or I was tweeting, I think, hey, I wish somebody would do This Week in Startups in another region. And you raised your hand and said, I would do that. And we started This Week in Startups Australia. Yep. Such a great community there. Yes. And, and getting a lot better right now. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really booming. And so you started This Week in Startups Australia, which right. is a great program. You're such a good interviewer. And... Um, we got sponsors, and we've done a couple, a do, over a dozen episodes now. We're in season three. Uh, we're into 35 or something Unbelievable. episodes. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so thank you for doing that. And then lo and behold, um, the people of Australia have been lobbying to bring the launch festival to Australia. It they turns have out, risen up as one yes. to ask for Jason to bring the launch festival to Sydney. To Sydney. And at the same time, Melbourne... Melbourne, Melbourne has also asked to bring it to, to Australia. So right now we're in the middle of a two-city competition. Um, and today I am committing to bringing the launch festival to Australia in the next year. And we're going to announce the city in two weeks. So congratulations to the people of Australia. Um, that'll, and, and it will not just be the Launch Festival Australia. It's going to be in Australia, but for the whole region, because Australia has been the hub of all of Asia now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it'll be New Zealand, Sing, uh, probably Singapore, definitely Indonesia, all of that. All these regions. So it's going to be fantastic. In a couple of weeks, we'll make that announcement. And so there it is. Jason Calacanis has announced that the Launch Festival is coming to Australia. As you can hear quite clearly, I tried to get him to say that it was going to be coming to Sydney. He hasn't made any decision theoretically. A few days after this podcast airs, we will know. Phil, can you shed any light on what's going on here? What's going on with this process? Well, I think the process all began when um, 
Matt Barry and the Victorian government announced Sid start moving to Melbourne. And um, they said it was going to be moving this year, and as it turns out, it's, it's not moving not, until yes, next year. That's right. Um, I, I and a number of other people were extremely frustrated by this, the logic being that we need we need a big conference here in, in Sydney, um, and Sid start going makes an enormous hole. Because um, it's called Sid Start. <laughs> and also, you know, Sid Start has been 10 years in the building. It takes a village to raise a child, and a lot, literally hundreds of people have worked very hard in Sydney to make Sid Start, you know, where it is today. So that was very disappointing. So having got grumpy for a little while, the next step is to do something positive. So let's let's fill the gap. Let's bring something in that's 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 better. Let's 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 level up. Um, so the team at Innovation Bay and Polonizer uh, got together. We talked to you, Mark, um, and we approached Jason Calacanis and said, "You need to come to Sydney." Mm. Um, in that offer, um, we had the support of the New South Wales government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and currently, Jason is sitting on a very exciting offer, I think, a very positive, commercially strong, uh, ecosystem-supported uh, offer for, it, for what is the only sensible choice, which is to bring it to Sydney. But of course, as we talked about earlier in this podcast, we are not functioning in a vacuum. And... If I remember correctly, pretty when we thought the negotiations were sewn up, Jason tweeted, and Philip Deladakis, the Minister for mm-hmm. Innovation from Victoria, was on it like white on rice, and immediately started a second set of negotiations. And so all of a sudden, something that became quite straightforward, started as straightforward, quite straightforward, has now become the battleground between the two large metropolitan areas in Australia. Here's why I think Jason will make the right decision and come to Sydney. I know that things that drive him are entrepreneurial integrity and support of startups and impact, having the largest impact. Here in Sydney, we not only do not have a large conference right now for Mm. startups, we also have uh, an ecosystem which is at least twice as big as the Victorian ecosystem. So the capacity to make an enormous conference here, which is of the scale of the Silicon Valley event, which we all love, right. I think is very, very high. Um, also, in the, in the bid um, that New South Wales made to launch, there was phenomenal ecosystem support with offers of help, material offers from help from people who can materially help make so the event successful. So basically, Sydney is saying they will get behind this 100%. So, so we're ready. You know, We're ready mm-hmm. for launch to come, and we think it will be massive here in Sydney. Paul, what do you reckon? Uh, look, I'm I'm talking from what I've accused another journalist of doing, of talking from the towering peaks of ignorance on this, because I'm fully an outsider. I have no idea of the um, of the behind well, we the scenes machinations. Here, right? We do. We've got a problem that we still don't have a conference centre, and on top of that, the New South Wales government tends not, and I say this as somebody who's been inside that mm. uh, system, tends not to be as aggressive as Victoria in spending money on that. This latest. Um, iteration is not new. The Victorian government historically has been prepared to throw a lot more money at industry development, particularly technology, tech industries, uh, whether it's film, whether it's uh, creative industries, whether it's startups. Victoria 
tends to spend more money on uh, support programs. So I would say that if the checkbooks are coming out, there's probably it's going to be a harder sell for Dominello than it is for his Victorian counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, the Victorians are much more across that. Um, I would agree with Phil on a lot of the advantages that Sydney has. Um, but uh, this, if it comes down to a bidding war, uh, then um, I think uh, Sydney's going to going to be hamstrung in that the state government will probably be much more aggressive in Victoria to put the dollars in. So, That's historically, I may well be wrong, you're in contact with the ministers and that. Uh, my advice is to go as high up in the tree as possible. Um, but uh, but the, I think again, we've got this fight between Sydney and Melbourne. I'm not sure from the view from Silicon Valley they particularly care about that. That um, I don't even think they understand it, right? Uh, it's funny, when you put it to them in terms of um, Los Angeles versus New York, because I don't even think the San Francisco versus Los Angeles model works because these are two very different sized cities, whereas yeah. Sydney and Melbourne are reasonably close in size. Yeah. All right, final question, closing comments. This is going to, in fact, be the topic of the next show. We're going to finally do a virtual reality special. I saw a lot of virtual reality when I was in America. We will be talking to the founder of a Wellington-based company on the next show, AI. Is it back? Is it back for reals? Uh, I'm still scarred from my experience 20 years ago. It's interesting that you say, Phil, that Australians won't invest in VR because Carthona Capital has an investment in zero latency, which is a firm doing VR out of Melbourne. So there's some level of interest mm. going on. But is there anything else going on in this country that looks real in virtual reality land right now or, or augmented reality land? I, personally, I um, haven't seen much happening here in Australia. Most of it's happening out of the US. I mean, there's obviously an enormous amount happening out of the US with Facebook's um, investment in Oculus and things like that. Um, what I'm I'm fascinated with um, all the innovation in there. I'm fascinated by the the high end stuff that Oculus are doing. Even these machines where people can run around and actually be inside mm-hmm. a world and have the the hardware around things. Uh, what I think is really clever is Google Cardboard, mm-hmm. um, be, just because it massively commoditizes it so because it's three dollars that's right with your smartphone and three dollars worth of actual cardboard you Mm. can literally go inside a roller coaster or or virtualize your living room if you want to do that i think i I think there's going to be some i mean if you look at something like that there are some profound value propositions to create for 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 education and for entertainment that you know already the four billion people in the world could technically <laughs> access. So I think that's what's different to the world where you made VRML, where people just didn't have that access, right? Now we've all got the tools that we need. Last week, McDonald's Sweden announced that you'd be able to take one of their Happy Meals and fold it into a Google Cardboard. That's right. And if it works in Sweden, they're going to roll it out around the world. So every kid who gets a Happy Meal is going to get a cardboard. So, Paul, what do you reckon? Uh, I think in the Australian space, it's a lot of uh, looking at trying to monetize in the short term. Mm -hmm. So we're back to that thing again of how do we make money out of this um, through the advertising industry mm. in partnership with companies like McDonald's. Most of the people I know doing VR and AR here in Sydney and Melbourne, are, uh, that's the area that they're looking at. They're in agency do- land. They're in agency land, which is a world, of, as we all know, is a world of pain of its own. But uh, I think the big things to be watching over the next few months are what happens on the political front with this. I'm worried that the innovation statement is getting um, bogged in the early election talk, and I'm genuinely worried that we won't see these changes come in that were flagged actually come in. 
because, because we're not, it's just not going to be time. There's not going to be time. We're going to have a budget. We're going to have a new government, be it a new Liberal government or a new Labor government or a hung parliament, which right. is a whole world of fun in itself. Um, I, well, I we survived just, the last one. Yeah, and so the next Twister, you'll probably have a better view on um, what's happening in the Australian scene politically. And on that note, Paul, Phil, thank you very much for being our esteemed news panel on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure, Mark. Big thanks to series sponsors Braintree because their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Swamith and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is a consistent joy to listen to. Thanks to Phil Morrill and Paul Wallbank for making the time to come on our show. We will be back in a fortnight, as I mentioned, with Twista's first look into the reborn world of virtual reality. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.